Have you ever listened to the pod and thought it would be awesome if Jen stopped being nerdy about movies for 60 seconds and talked about your business instead? Well, my friends, you're in luck. Watch with Jen is looking for sponsors. Do you own or run a theater, bookstore, film fest, website, school, physical media firm, pod, streaming channel, or small business that might like to advertise on Watch With Jen? Whether you're interested in sponsoring one episode or several, please reach out. You can get a hold of me at contact at filmintuition.com. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. This week, I am so pleased to welcome back to the podcast, a very talented, supportive, and funny friend. Currently based in Newark, Delaware, Mitchell Beaupre is not only the senior editor at one of my favorite services via Letterboxd, but they're also the co-host of the Weekend Watch List and co-host of Four Favorites podcasts, which you can find in the stream for the Letterboxd show. Additionally, a prolific freelance film journalist and stellar interviewer for prestigious outlets such as The Film Stage, Paste Magazine, The Playlist, and Little White Lies. You can keep up with all of their impressive work on Twitter at It Is Mitchell. Mitchell, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It's always a joy. I love getting to know you better through your taste in movies. And I thought this was such a genius idea. But before we get into that, how are you doing and how is 2024 treating you so far? Well, thank you for having me back. Very excited to to just be with you in general. But then also, yeah, this this subject matter, I think, is a very exciting one. Um, the year so far crazy that it's only the like first week of February that we're recording this um feels like so much has been going on um I I feel like I've been extremely busy but in a way that's kind of felt okay I think towards Mm -hmm. the end of last year um I like had kind of stopped just with like medical stuff um like cat issues whatever I like had been I hadn't like written anything. I hadn't done any like interviews or podcast appearances for the last like three months of last year. And I definitely felt like creative and it was the, you know, it was the right decision for me to do. I think, uh, you know, doing that would have put too much on me, but it definitely, I've been feeling in like a little bit of like a creative and even like a social like rut of just feeling a little bit out of it and like not having those kind of juices going. And that has been like a little bit depleting, you know, a little bit deflating um, for me as somebody who just likes to, you know, be with my friends talking about movies, writing about movies and stuff like that. So it's definitely nice to to get back into the swing of things. How about you? How's the year going for you so far? I completely relate to you because I kind of forced myself to take January off and take yeah. a break and recharge. Uh, our good friend Blake Howard, kind of similar thing, like, oh, my mm-hmm. God, I'm burned out. We need to take a break. And then both of us, like we start taking a break and then immediately it feels weird. And you want to start like, like, what the hell am I doing? I'm reading books. Like, uh, you know, I was reading, luckily we have a lot of talented friends. So I was reading like one of my friends, um, the memoir he's working on. I read that. I read uh, Dwayne Straczynski's new book, California Bear, which was great. And then some stuff for research. But 
Yeah, I was ready to come back and exactly for the same reasons, have some good conversations with my friends, talk about movies. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Can I just say too, because you mentioned Blake, Midnight Run Through is like a blast. Like you guys are killing oh, it. You. I love it. I love every single episode. I like anxiously wait for each new one to drop. Not to plug, you know, not to plug you, but like it's I mean, when you guys announced that you were doing it, I was like, this is the perfect podcast with the perfect people. And <laughs> it's been such a treat. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad you're enjoying it. It has been just a blast to do. We kind of had been talking about doing this for a couple of years now. I think our first conversation back in 2019, he assigned me a De Niro minute of one heat yeah. minute and uh, had no idea. I was a De Niro fan. I'm not <laughs> sure like where, which rock he had been hiding under. <laughs> but um, so we just kind of bonded over with Night Run and it was a good way to start a friendship. So I was glad to revisit it. And, you know, it's amazing how many people love that damn movie. I mean, for good yeah. reason. I love it. You love it. But uh, but it's cool to be joined by like Ben Mankiewicz and Megan Abbott, yeah. these great people who just love this movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So thank you for listening. But speaking of, you know, uh, the 80s, that's what we're here to discuss. I, yeah. I'm always excited by Mitchell's ideas and they came up with a good list. I think we had a few that I might have uh, jotted down for <laughs> next time or we're always kind of talking about ideas. Um, but the one that they uh, suggested that I was so excited about was Francis Ford Coppola in the 80s because I did cover like uh, Mitchell was on the episode, uh, a couple of them that I did for Dennis Hopper last year. So yeah. he kind of talked about like Apocalypse Now. I did a Pacino in the 70s episode with my good friend S.A. Cosby. And so we kind of covered those. But you know, Coppola's 80s period does get overlooked. I did cover Rumblefish to a tiny extent with my friend uh, William Boyle when we did M- Mickey Rourke like several mm. seasons ago, but that was forever ago. So this was a really good idea. Talk to me about Francis Ford Coppola, the 80s. Do you remember what your first Coppola movie was? And was it from this decade at all? Yeah, I mean, I think probably my f- my first first one was probably honestly just because of my age was probably Jack, like because you know yes. uh, <laughs> I was born in ninety, so like when it came out, I was probably in. I remember seeing like Flubber and Jumanji and stuff like that in theaters, so I probably saw it just as like a Robin Williams movie and was like, oh, this is like way weirder and more sad than I was yeah. expecting it to be. But I don't really have any like concrete memory of seeing that and certainly was not seeing it under the veil of like, this is a Francis Ford Coppola movie or anything like that. Um, I think the first one that I can remember distinctly seeing is the Godfather. Just when I was like getting into movies, it's like, you have to see the Godfather. And um, I remember watching it. I got like the DVD from Netflix. I was like 16 and I just remember um, watching it like really late at night and obviously being, you know, mesmerized by it. um, And like, immediately when it was over at like three o'clock in the morning putting the dvd back in the sleeve bringing it back out to the mailbox and like i remember it was raining um and then like walking back inside and like sending it away so that i could get part two and like waiting for that to come and just the thrill i mean you know i mean obviously you know the the thrill of dvd netflix and like sending Mm -hmm. out like i just remember the 
the satisfaction and the anticipation of sending something out in the mail and like waiting for the next one to come in. Um, and I miss, I miss that, you know, the streaming age it's, it's got its luxuries, but I do miss that a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely like was very keyed into seventies Coppola, like in my burgeoning, like cinephilia yeah. as most people are. And the conversation has, from when I first saw that was in my like top 10 of all time still is in mm -hmm. my top 10 of all time it's still my favorite Coppola movie but I think that the 70s like he is so often regarded for having that like unimpeachable 70s run of the four that he did and it's like holy crap this guy made four masterpieces in a row in one decade like wow and like yeah of course like that's you know he did that but I think the for me the 80s run is so much more interesting. I think it's his most interesting decade. I think the movies are fascinating. And like, there's this thing of like what, so when you had four masterpieces, when you basically like scaled Everest four times in a row, like what do you do then after you've established yourself as one of the greatest directors in the world? And what's really interesting for me about the eighties is like so many of them, they look and feel like big swings even though so many, like, I mean, everything basically post one from the heart, he did for money, like ostensibly, you know, oh, because yeah. to pay off mm -hmm. the debts of one from the heart. But, and he sucks, you know, some of them, he's like, not like he, he says like, I wasn't as crazy about the script, but like, I needed to make a movie like every year to keep mm -hmm. making the payments off of, you know, my bankruptcy and everything. Um, but I still think that like every single one of these movies in the eighties, is really really interesting and you see him go in so many different directions like a movie like peggy sue got married like if i saw that just like out of any kind of context i would not immediately place that as a francis ford coppola movie yeah but then you like you you learn more about him and it definitely has these things that feel like a Francis Ford Coppola movie. Like there's this earnestness to it. There's obviously this respect that he has for other eras of filmmaking. I think Peggy Sue Got Married feels very much like a Frank Capra movie to me with, with mm -hmm. that kind of earnestness, with the sort of like the slight magical realism and just this appreciation for life and this appreciation for kind of being at, as you're aging, sort of losing that sense of like yourself and that sense of enjoyment of life and like rediscovering that. And I think that despite all of the difficulties that he had in this decade with many of the films that we'll talk about, I definitely feel like you get a really rich sense through all of these movies, but especially something like Cotton Club. I, I think especially Tucker, the man in his dream is one where you like you watching it, you feel like this is a guy who loves cinema who loves making mm -hmm. movies rumblefish especially too like you feel mm -hmm. the passion so even when he's doing like paycheck gigs you never lose sight of the fact that francis Ford coppola is a guy who like wakes up every day wanting to be a filmmaker and wanting to make movies and so i, I yeah i just love this decade um but what about for you like what before even like doing this where did like if you just thought you know what i said you know let's do francis Ford coppola in the 80s what what did that kind of register for you I thought it was really inspiring because uh, same thing. I mean, everyone listening to this show or who's followed me for years knows that The Godfather is my favorite film. I just call it The Godfather, but I mean the whole trilogy. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, growing up in my family, we watched them every like usually around Christmas, every holiday season. It was just kind of something we did. 
I think though that was maybe from the time like middle school on. Uh, mm. But I think my first Coppola movies were probably some of these. Like I think uh, Peggy Sue got married. I remember watching on TV. I wasn't crazy about it. I remember watching Outsiders for the first time at like a friend's birthday party. Uh, she wanted to watch it. And I think because it was like old fashioned and all the girls at the party just wanted to go gossip and do makeup and stuff. <laughs> Nobody wanted to sit in the room and watch a movie with her except me. And so I was <laughs> really excited to watch. So I remember Outsiders, Tucker, I remember renting from the store and remember I, I remember thinking it was really vibrant, vibrant and vivid and just loving the colors and the sound. And we'll get into all of that, too. Um, and I love that you brought up Jack, because for the longest time, I thought that was my first date. Um, wow. I think it was either Jack or an eye for an eye, which is like the worst <laughs> wow. movie to see on a first date. But I think we saw the preview and just assumed it was going to be like a kick ass movie. Yeah. And uh, so I always, for the longest time, like it was Jack, but I think that the other <laughs> one came out at first, but both instances were going to the movies with male friends and just assuming it was like a, a hang. And yeah. I mean, these guys always just call everything a hang and you have no idea what it means. And then when you're at the theater, you're like, oh shit, this is a date. And yeah. uh, both of those instances. So for the longest time, I'm like, oh yeah, that was my first date with Paul to Jack and Chris <laughs> to uh, an eye for an eye. But, um, but yeah, so Jack, man, I remember <laughs> um, getting there and then like, why is he acting so straight? Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. So I do remember going to it, both of us, because of Robin Williams. But also, I mean, he was someone I watched movies with all the time um, because it was Francis Ford Coppola. So it was like a little jarring at first. It was yeah. like, OK, this is Coppola working in Tucker mode. So I was nerdy enough to kind of recognize that kind of thing or Peggy Sue mode. Um, and, you know, the 90s were also interesting because. I loved and so did Bilga, uh, the Rainmaker. I think that's a really I adore yeah. the Rainmaker. Oh, and he was always apologizing that for that. Like Woody Allen never had to make a fucking Russian <laughs> movie. And it's like, no, but you know who did? Like Pakula, Pollock, and these are great movies, yeah. man. Like, you know, own it. Altman did. Uh, to yeah. go with your hat there are three women i'm like yeah. <laughs> you know i said hat on an audio podcast so everyone listens like what the hell is she talking about but yes so i love this i think it's inspiring and you know let's go from there do you have so you think your favorite coppola movie is the conversation you said yeah yeah the conversation is my favorite um for sure i mean just i'm like a very big paranoia thriller oh, yeah. uh, person in general i mean speaking of Me Pukula, like the parallax view like is is a yeah. huge one all the president's men's huge like that 70s air marathon man like all that kind of stuff like i mm -hmm. i vibe with 100 percent. so it was definitely like in my pocket especially as like um like in my teenage years as i'm discovering film and like that was probably the first one of those kind of movies that i had even seen um mm -hmm. so i really like changed my world and gene hackman gene hackman's you know, on give it on any given day, yes. maybe like my favorite actor, definitely like top three actors for me. And that's like his best performance. Um, but I think from the the 80s, I think out of everything in here, you know, I would have said 
before recording this or before we started doing prep for this, the Cotton Club is my favorite. Um, but I think that Rumblefish honestly might have and rewatching all of these for this. I think Rumblefish kind of took over that for me, which kind of makes sense because Rumblefish is out of all of his 80s movies, the one that I had seen like the lo- it had been the longest since I had last seen it. I saw it when I was a teenager. Um, okay. I I liked it, you know, I thought it was good, but I think from like a storytelling perspective, I was just kind of like, I've, you know, I've seen movies like this, whatever. And it just didn't like, like, I didn't really remember too much about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when I watched it, when I started watching it again for this, like instantly, I was like, oh, this is like, this is incredible. Um, And I think that Coppola like described that he wanted to make it as like an art film for teenagers. And That's what like it is. utilizing spe- exactly yeah utilizing mm-hmm. like specific lenses angles photography like these like surrealistic flourishes he was like really inspired by the silent era and like german expressionism while doing it you have like this the sets are have like painted you know backdrops on them mm-hmm. um like painting shadows and everything on the sets and i think that that's something that i wasn't appreciate ironically because like the idea of art film for teenagers you know I, as a teenager i wasn't appreciating that as much um and in this interview i was watching with coppola he said that like they he made it like for teenagers but then when they played it in test screenings for teenagers they hated it um yeah but yeah i think that it's just it's the kind of movie that like you can only appreciate i mean maybe not only but for me i only appreciate it at this level like looking back on that era because i was a kid who yeah i was never involved with like Go ahead. I was going to say you need a little bit of the ability to look back, the nostalgia a little bit. And also you need the cinema literacy of all those things you were just mentioning, German expressionism. And, you know, the more the older you get, just like uh, watching Peggy Sue got married or any of these, um, you don't watch the same movie twice. You don't put your foot in the same river twice. But uh, definitely for Rumblefish, I was new to it. Um, a few years ago was my first viewing, I think maybe for the podcast with Bill uh, Boyle mm. and just completely fell in love with it. But yeah, I would love to hear more about um, seeing it as a teen versus now for sure. Go for it. Yeah, no. Yeah, I think that I think you're exactly right about like the the cinema literacy, like definitely playing in part of it, because now I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, this is like coppola doing like a french new wave version of the warriors which are like Mm -hmm. two you know i mean one era of filmmaking and one specific film that i had not seen when i watched it the first time and so the first time i'm watching it i'm just like yeah this is like a coming of age kind of movie but like the i think that yeah you're just picking up like all of these references all of these ideas that he's doing but even just like you know, you mentioned talking about William Boyle and like doing it for Rourke, the Rourke performance in that character, Motorcycle Boy, I think is a character that like resonated for me in such a deeper way now because yes. I see so much of myself in him versus when I'm watching it as a young person, I'm watching mm-hmm. it like visualizing myself as Rusty James or whatever. And yeah. I think that what connects so much for Rumblefish is this idea of like, you make the world like larger than it is mm-hmm. when you're a kid and then you grow up and like it's disappointing and so like as motorcycle boy like he he goes out on on the road he wants to go you know meet his mother he goes to california and he gets all the way there and he realizes like there's nothing really there for him and this like mm-hmm. idea of 
you know, this great America that he always envisioned him, you know, taking his bike and going out on the road. Ultimately, he just comes back to where he started and he feels like he just has to settle there. And I think that there is such like a um, there's there's such like resonance in Mickey Rourke's performance and like this how he captures that idea of like the legend that they invented is all just like a bunch of bullshit. And then like mm-hmm. all these characters are seeing him as this guy that they put on a pedestal. And I feel like I see in him so much of like a lot of my favorite Westerns are like the gunfighter or like assassination of Jesse James by the cow rubber for these Westerns that are like about the myth and like deconstructing the myth of like the great Mm -hmm. hero. And I definitely think you see that on motorcycle boy where like he comes back and he's 21 and these younger characters talk about how like he looks so old, he looks so weathered, he looks, you know, so aged and he's just like carrying is this guy carrying this like pressure of the expectation that everybody has around him to be great? Even the the cops have this like mm-hmm. they put him on this pedestal as this figurehead of something. And it's like he's just he's just this guy. And he now recognizes that he's just this guy. He's not anything special. And he doesn't know how to reconcile with that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of print the legend to go with the Western. That man yeah. shot Liberty Valance, but he's almost like an Anthony Mann Western character a little yeah. bit. But um, I love what you were saying. I, I watched The Outsiders again last night, which I had revisited once, um, I want to say like a year ago for the first time in decades. And thinking about these movies, because they're both based on S.E. Hinton novels uh, for young adults, she's kind of one of those authors that we think of, like, kind of helped launch YA, essentially. Um, But, like, that's sort of the James Dean. uh, And this is kind of the Jack Kerouac. There is a beat generation sort of on-the-road quality. But there's also kind of this idea that I think Rusty James, looking at it, thinks he's so cool, his older brother. Um, these movies are brothers, essentially, and brothers uh, yeah. is brotherhood, especially, uh, and siblings are very important to Coppola. He's a family guy. And, um, you know, there's also some elements of uh, Travels with Charlie and this idea of nostalgia of travel like well didn't you go and see the ocean and like you know there's kind of this idea and it's like yeah I went searching for America but as you said it's an America that isn't really there and I also love that Mickey Rourke is in his early 20s and he's playing a character the same age but he is someone who looks like he's lived so many lifetimes uh it's kind of that old I mean because Essentially, you're talking about this era and like Rob Lowe and the people who were in um, Outsiders being in movies like St. Elmo's Fire. Some of the criticisms for that film were like, oh, my God, they're 25 and they're having a midlife crisis, essentially. (laughs) Um, But like Motorcycle Boy has fucking lived, man. Like he can have a midlife crisis, essentially. But what I love so much um, just thinking about, first of all, Mickey Rourke is just unbelievably beautiful in this movie. And it is his most like Marlon Brando kind of performance. But he approached it sort of like probably an actor. He maybe like a Brando, somebody like that. He said it was um, he was looking at it as well. Camus was a visual representation of the existentialism he was looking for, like with the cigarette. But yeah. as an actor who no longer is impressed with his old work or is just like, yeah, man, or, you know, that thing where 
actors do conventions and they make money and stuff but then like the 500th person comes by yeah hey what was it like to be in blah 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 you're like awesome man you just keep saying (laughs) and um you know so you kind of get that sense and that's exactly what he said he was going for he's like i played it like an actor who just doesn't he can't get excited about it anymore and it's probably lost its romanticism and i think that's interesting because i mean there's that old line about every movie is really about filmmaking and so Mm. i like that uh element too but i will let you lead us in we should just kind of go with rumblefish so tell me more about that yeah no i yeah i like i wonder a quote that i read from mickey rourke is the um that he said yeah like uh he'd approach it like an actor who hates acting and i think that's (laughs) That's exactly it. Yeah, I think that um, it's it's such an interesting performance and it's such an impressive performance because the way that he's introduced so early on is during this big street fight. Like it's this and it's so gorgeously shot um, mm-hmm. that street fight. I mean, the whole cinematography, Stephen, um, Stephen Burham's cinematography is like super evocative. There's a street fight with Rusty James played by Matt Dillon and his gang like going through you know the setting and it's like you you've got like they're framed by these like birds flying in front of them yes. you see, like the shadows of like cats jumping off of trash cans and it's like stunning Cop- coppola had the fight um choreographed by the dude who was like running the san francisco ballet at the time yes and mm-hmm. like the choreography is so gorgeous and then uh motorcycle boy comes in and like the framing of how he's come in is like the most like hero shot. It's like John oh, it's Wayne's the hero coach. shot. Of like all it's time. yeah, yeah. And it's just like we see the bike from below, and he's mm-hmm. framed with like the smoke behind him. And it's like, oh, the prodigal, you know, the hero has returned. Like this is the guy. And he, when he goes to speak for the first time, his voice is so quiet. Like he is, yes. he is so speaking in whispers almost. Mm-hmm. And I just think that kind of proof that choice is so impressive to me because it is a guy who like we see it we see it in guys of this of you know that age group today we've seen it since Mm -hmm. the days of james dean and marlon brando like so many guys want to be james dean and marlon brando Mm -hmm. and they come at like this is a character who easily could have been that and they could have played it like way too hard and i feel like that's the biggest you know issue Mm -hmm. with a lot of those kind of guys who are going for that kind of thing yeah you can just transparently see them like leaning into that mm-hmm. and Rourke really downplays it I think mm-hmm. in a really impressive way and it speaks to that thing of like him humanizing this guy that people see as something else it, he reminded me watching it this time he reminded me a lot of um Paul Newman and Cool Hand Luke specifically like the section of that movie where he escapes and then comes back and like yes. everybody has to reckon with the fact like yeah yeah this is just a guy like he is not the Mm -hmm. the dude that we've lionized anymore the dude who like represents our ability to get out and even both of them end up in like magazines their pictures Mm -hmm. in magazines and everything and yeah it just like that that really resonated with me but it's like so much to the rusty james of it all right is like abby he's he's our like our figurehead and i think that that character is i mad dylan is fantastic and i love it as what you were saying about the brother between the outsiders and rumble fish is great because you look at like an inverse almost yeah exactly yeah yeah and then the 
the him and Diane Lane relationship yeah. is like so so adverse. Yeah, yeah, it's like a carnival mirror almost because in um, Outsiders she has that line because they clash right away and he's horrible yeah. to her and she's terrified of him and then she says something like if I see him again I might fall in love with him and then the you know when we see them at the beginning of Rumble she's clearly in love with him and. Um, you know, and he's going to break her heart. So it's kind of like what she was worried about or the type of boy she was worried about. But he's sort of more like a motorcycle boy um, character in the first one. And it's interesting yeah. that Coppola and Hinton were working on this on Sunday, their day off from Outsiders, because like the energy, I mean, some of it would have been drug fueled, of course, <laughs> and just mania. But um that he was filming that, like, you know, because these were made back to back in Tulsa, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, like the same crew, a lot of the same cast members. I also love that in a, a bunch of these, you have young Sofia Coppola and uh, how obnoxious she's always like kind of getting <laughs> in Matt Dillon's face. That's always uh, kind of a fun thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to see these movies play back to back. Also what he does with music. I didn't realize, I mean, you love conversation and what that is going on with um, the sound, of course, and Walter Murch and then apocalypse. Now you think of, you know, it opens with the door and the whipping or the doors yeah. and the whipping uh, overhead ceiling fan and all of that. But this is a guy who did make Finian's rainbow. And in yeah. college, he loved musical theater and uh, clearly he loves like he's making musicals even when he's not making musicals like Outsiders is kind of like uh, American Graffiti a little bit. Mm. It's just it's a jukebox wall to wall music and Tucker, a man in his dream, the way that's punctuated with sound. I mean, even there's a thing that goes through it with Jeff Bridges doing Hold That Tiger. And, um, yeah. you know, that's kind of a way of going through it. And he's the son, of course, Coppola of um, a flute player. He's got a relative who was the accompaniment for uh, Caruso. And just, you know, so it's it's interesting. These do feel just intensely personal. And exactly what you're saying at the beginning, like, you might have gotten snippets of this watching them here and there, but when you watch them all in quick succession and do a little reading, uh, you start realizing these are very biographical for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, and it's, it's all the more impressive because he was doing so many of them primarily for the paychecks that like he yeah. still brings so much of himself into every mm -hmm. single one of these. And as you were saying, like he, notoriously is a family man and yeah. like he puts so much of that into every single one of his movies the mm -hmm. the brotherhood stuff of rumblefish and how that represents like his relationship with his brother in a lot of ways and how he always felt kind of usurped by his brother his brother his older brother was you know seen that like as this legend that he could never live up to and it's like yeah. seeing that in the kind of transferred into this these films made by a master is mm -hmm. really interesting. It just speaks to, you know, how we all, no matter what you think, like we all kind of have our issues. And I think that that's the thing too, with like Coppola in the eighties, especially, but like, as, as I was growing up, I knew, you know, when I learned of the legend of apocalypse now and the hearts of darkness of it all and everything, and like how disastrous of a production that was like, I got this idea of Francis Ford Coppola as 
somebody who was like one of these like tyrannical, you know, monster directors who like ran productions into the ground, who had these mm-hmm. grand visions and like worked everyone to death and everything like that. But then and and a lot of these had really chaotic productions too, but you you watch him in interviews, he's so like sincere, he's so quiet, he's so reserved and like Papa and, Bear. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He seems like the sweetest dude in the world. Um, and he has such like a great even watching some of the like behind the scenes features for these things um, that are, have been recorded more recently within the last like five years or whatever. Like he has such a great recall for so many specific elements of all of these mm-hmm. movies for, you know, I, you know, this per like this funny story about this person on this or whatever. I was watching the um, the there's like a Q&A from one of the recent screenings of Cotton Club Encore on the Cotton Club Encore Blu-ray. Um, and in the middle of him talking about um, how at the time there was like resistance to how many black characters were in that movie. And that was like a really big concern or whatever. He goes off in this tangent out of nowhere about how like Danny DeVito, who is not even in the Cotton Club, Danny DeVito is so short in real life. <laughs> but he like he's he's like so short. He's like Francis Ford Coppola is like he's a tidy, tidy, tidy man. But when you meet him, he's gigantic. Like his presence is just so huge that I forget that he's so short. And so I have him walking up, you know, twenty flights of stairs. And Danny DeVito is like Francis, you've got to stop having me walk up these stairs during the scene. I can't do it. Like my body can't do it. And it's like. Just he's one of those guys that I could just listen to, like tell stories for for, you know, I'd be for weeks. Like I could just listen to him talk about this stuff forever. And yeah, you just you get that sense that he just loves being being on a set working. And it makes so much sense that he brings his family into, you know, Mm -hmm. all of these films that he does because he wants it to be like a family business. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And I'm glad you brought up Cotton Club because that is a movie that just like you were saying with Rumblefish, I mean, I saw it in the 90s and uh, didn't make a lot of sense to me. It kind of jumped around. It was hard to follow. And then I watched in adulthood Cotton Club Encore and just completely fell in love with it. I thought, you know, and Coppola to bring up um, people of his generation, Lucas, when he goes in and messes with his movies, he like deletes it and you're not getting that original uh, cutback. But I do love, I mean, he's made maybe five too many cuts of Apocalypse Now at this point. You're kind of like, Francis, baby, stop playing with your movies. But (laughs) you know what? If he wants to keep doing it um, as long as he leaves uh, multiple versions, I think. And it's interesting uh, because with the cutting of it all, this is someone who did love technology. He said if he could handle like the math better, he probably would have gone into science. Uh, His dad wanted him to be an engineer. And uh, I think he did really great things with Cotton Club. I do have a little bit of a different experience with One from the Heart, so I'm eager to hear more about that. But Cotton Club Encore, I think the film really opened up for me in a way. First of all, how do you make that movie? And what is wrong with studio heads that are like, you know what? We don't need Lana McKee singing Stormy Weather. Like, what planet are these people on that's like the scene of the movie? And, um, you know, and I I don't remember there being as many scenes with Bob Hoskins. Diane Lane has a better arc. Um, It's 
interesting. I'm I'm curious to see what happens with your letterboxed uh, ratings after this, but we're getting all of the Coppola people in there already as our most watched actors. And yeah. I can't wait. I keep seeing like Sophia Coppola in actress mode is already one of my most watched uh, <laughs> actors for the year. But talk to me about Cotton Club. Yeah, yeah. Cotton Club. Yeah, like I said before, um, I was before I saw Rumble Fish again, Cotton Club was my favorite of him from this decade. I think my favorite of his after conversation in The Godfather, like Cotton Club is like right there for me. Um, cool. specifically the Encore version, yes. and, which is the only version that I've seen. Um oh, I good, only saw good. Yeah, I only saw the Cotton Club for the first time last year, um, which with watching the encore version. And yeah, I was like, how did anybody not like this? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. But then doing research on what the differences are of the encore version to the theatrical, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, okay. So like the studio cut this to hell and cut out so many essential parts of it. Um, The plot didn't make much sense. I mean, yeah, there is kind of an element of, uh, Francis in this era, when you look at some of these plots, there are a little on the simple side or um, what, but this one, there were multiple character arcs and people overlapping. And I mean, it kind of, to bring it back to your hat again, a little bit like an Altman movie, it's mm, a little mm-hmm. bit of a tapestry. And so you need all of these, um, you know, you have all of these supporting players that come back later they introduce like um the right hand man of this gangster and that one um another person who has been in all of these films we're talking about of course is nicholas cage his nephew and so cage has a role in this again you're dealing with some great people from the 80s like jennifer gray has a small role in this movie and um also, Richard Gere, if you are a fan of Richard Gere, as I am, and I think you are too, um, who loved Chicago, and, uh, you know, watch these back-to-back. It's it's yeah. Gere in, in two musicals, yes. Yeah, I didn't even know before watching this that he, like, in real life is a cornet player, and he, yes, like, those are they really were talking his about... Solos. Yeah. yeah, they, like, wanted him to be in this movie, and he, I think this might have been when it was like Robert Evans was going to be directing it originally and yes. he was the one who wanted gear um and gear like they wanted him to play a gangster and he was like no if I'm doing this movie I'm gonna be a musician and they're like no white musicians ever played at the cotton club that doesn't make any <laughs> sense and but he just refused but yeah I, I yeah I am a massive fan of Richard gear and I think that this is like such a tremendous era for him because it's coming right off of like American Gigolo and Officer and Gentleman, Breathless, which are all fantastic movies that he's fantastic in. And I think that nobody, speaking of like the the Mickey Rourke stuff and like, I feel like most actors today just don't have the juice of guys like this. And I feel like- That's true. Like nobody has that kind of spark, but also that ability to lean into like the smarm and the ego and like this like mm-hmm. fascinating blend of a guy who walks into the room and completely owns it and has some people fall for it completely, but then others like totally recoil. Like, I don't know how he navigates that See where you understand. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Like somebody who can just bring in both of these things in one go. And yeah, I like it's it's fascinating to me that the the theatrical cut cuts out so many of especially the black characters get like yes. sidelined black. the hoskins character gets sidelined a lot and from from what i've read um but like 
I, what you said exactly like I think so much of the strength of this movie is the the interweaving of all of these different stories and how you know ostensibly gear is the lead but like it doesn't uh, gear mm-hmm. and Gregory yeah. Hines kind of are you know the, the figureheads Probably. for it but yeah. yeah Hoskins is as much of a character James Remar is as much of a character oh, he's great yeah and that McKee's as much of a character and I think that through all these elements we really get the great strength of the movie which I think is like the balance between understanding how this world operates for white people versus black people, not only as artists, but then also as gangsters. I think that we get such a different sense of like how you're able to operate with somebody like a Hoskins, you know, Mm -hmm. being able to be in this club where you have like the Lawrence Fishburne character who is this really smooth operator, but is not allowed in the cotton club as an audience member. Like he And he talks about how he was kind of forced to be this gangster. Like he, you know, the sort of like white supremacist society forced him to be this guy. And even the idea of the Cotton Club, like the the musical scenes in it are so wonderful. They're like so vividly constructed. They're gorgeous Mm -hmm. to watch. The music itself is tremendous. But we also never lose sight of the fact that this they is are like the entertainment. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. This yeah. is a club built by white people to have mm-hmm. black people on display for them and like all of their talents. And I think that Coppola does this really great thing of navigating that balance of appreciating the talent and the art and how like mesmerizing all of this is, but also having that little bit of venom in there of like there is so much toxicity in this. And so it never feels like it's it's celebrating or denigrating too much, which is is really tricky. Yeah, he's always uh, wanting you to like, you know, the people who are idiots and watch Godfather and like, oh, it's just, you know, glamorizing the mob yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, pay attention to the dialogue. And, you know, um, it's showing how, you know, the Italians uh, versus um, these characters anyway versus um, black versus uh, Jewish character just yeah. the different uh, prejudices of the day and you get that in the Cotton Club too because we have like Bob Hoskins uh, I think his character is like Irish born but from England yeah uh, if you do a little bit of reading and then also um, Dutch Schultz so you're dealing with um, people of different walks of life that are all kind of in this element and um, the way they're kind of kept in certain boxes and uh i think is really fascinating it's also about performance like you were talking about with gear um and his ability to kind of operate on multiple levels duality masculinity um that's sort of a gear thing like last year i did an episode with leslie byron pitt on Richard Gere and we were kind of talking about uh, the late 90s or late 70s to early 80s era and how he was sort of looking into what masculinity was all about uh, with Officer and Gentleman and Breathless and um, American Gigolo. But to some extent, that also kind of goes with this movie, too. And these are questions that I think Francis is asking when you put this side by side with Outsiders and Rumblefish and yeah. also Gardens of Stone, which is new to both Mitchell and I. Uh, so we are not going to be like the experts on that one. But what a man is supposed to do with his principles versus uh, what is expected of him uh, with an organization or society. Yeah. 
Yeah. Animal Fight Club's yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Kai Club too, like the family element is really in there. You have like these mm -hmm. two different sets of brothers that we see going across and like the gear and cage character, how they take a very different path versus the the Heinz brothers. Um, and I think that a thing that really, you know, stands out is to that idea of how gears like whiteness allows him to to operate in that world like he he be, just because he's a handsome guy he gets mm -hmm. to be be an actor as well even though yeah you know the people in the screening rooms are like this guy can't act at all <laughs> let's just have him in the movie like people like to look at him um versus you know gregory hines who basically his character has to sell out his brother almost like not really sell out his brother but like he kind of pushes his brother aside so that yes. he can ascend as a solo artist. And that's mm -hmm. the only way that he can get ahead. He can't bring his brother with him. And then you look at the Lonette McKee character who the talent on that woman is stratospheric. You mentioned the stormy weather sequence. I think I love the stormy weather sequence. I love that Coppola lets that play out just in full. It's just yes. the show. And mm -hmm. we're just like, he just cuts to people in the audience watching her like completely yeah, transfixed just, by her, just like we are. Yeah. And then, some are laughing. Some are just in awe. I yeah. think uh, Hoskins is like, what a beauty or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that even for her, like the most talented, you know, performer that we see in this movie, she can only kind of ascend further by passing, passing as white at a certain mm -hmm. point. Yeah, to get to Diane Lane's character, Vera ends up having her own club, and like that's how yeah. she gets. And I think just like nav like showing us that how different the world operates for these immense talents who happen to be black versus Richard mm -hmm. Gere, who happens to be white, who is not talented, but I mean, he's a good cornet player, but not a talented actor at all. But he becomes this, you know, recognizable star. where Everybody's like, hey, here's the actor. And mm -hmm. yeah, I just think I think that's really fascinating. And that's something that like I I was um, watching this one interview where Coppola says that like they added for Encore, they added 20 minutes to the movie. And yeah even though the movie initially in theaters, people said it really dragged, they added 20 more minutes and people are saying it flies by. It which really I, does. Yeah. Yeah. The, the encore cut completely flies by. Mm -hmm. I, it's like two and a half hours long. It feels like it's 90 minutes long. Like I finish it, could watch it again right away. And I think it speaks to how well paced it is, how well it navigates, like it interweaves the characters and everything, but also how full of a sense you're getting of every single one of these characters. Yeah. And what's interesting, I kind of I tweeted this yesterday and I know you saw it. But when you think of, again, talking about masculinity and sort of the new Hollywood era, these macho filmmakers like Scorsese and Bogdanovich and Altman and De Palma and all of them, uh, when they were kind of at the height of their artistic successes. And we see it in uh, the book Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. And then, mm -hmm. you know, they like give them sort of a, a a blank check and then you know they eventually have to put the reins on these guys but all of them want to make a musical and what's interesting is some of the musicals that were made like at long last love new york new york they're interesting but i think the cotton club might be the most successful uh the one i can probably watch the most which is yeah interesting yeah. yeah yeah i agree i i really really love new york new york i saw i also saw that for the first time last year i adore that movie um oh, but it's it very strong has, yeah it has a shagginess in the middle yeah, uh for sure <laughs> uh, but yeah so I, I agree that i think the cotton club encore is the most successful of 
of that kind of run of these new Hollywood yeah. auteurs, mm-hmm. you know, get it, getting, yeah, that carte blanche of being like, I'm going to make a musical. Um, and yeah, I think that the Cotton Club, um, we can get into one from the heart because that's the, that's the one that's that he kind other. of launched with, you know, but yeah. I think that they do have, there is this like symmetry in how they show that double-edged sword of like the glamour of, the big Hollywood musical and then Mm -hmm. the venom of like the industry and how like the bright lights and stargazing qualities like lurks something like really painful underneath. And they're both kind of unconventional musicals too, but I, I think you agree with me. I like one from the heart a lot, but I I think think you agree with me that it's it's not as solid as the comic club. (laughs) No. And what's interesting, I saw one from the heart a couple of years ago when movie was running it. And I Mm -hmm. thought it was one of the most stunning. It it still is one of the most stunning movies you're ever going to see. It's kind of as beautiful as uh, rumble fish, which, you know, has like, we were talking about the black and white with the little flashes of color to bring to life a, a colorblind character. And, also just kind of heighten the emotionality and a little bit of the magical realism. Like this is a movie that has neon. It's almost like a Cassavetes musical. If you want to yeah. talk about what one from the heart sort of feels like, like uh, there was an uh, interview with Ryan Gosling recently where he's like, Oh, I love that. And people yeah. are like, that surprises me. And it's like, really, did you see blue Valentine and La La Land? <laughs> and like this, this would totally be a Ryan Gosling picture. You have a, a very uh, Cassavetes like, you know, lots of fighting. And Peter Falk adored this movie. Um, he was one of the most um, just heaping praise on it when there was, I think it was the Radio City Music Hall screening. Um, mm. I loved, I think I loved it more the first time I saw it. I was just completely mesmerized. Like, what is wrong with people? I don't know if it's, it would be interesting now to go back and watch it now that I've seen the reprise cut. I'm wondering if I don't like it quite as much with the reprise cut, but as far as what the film looks like, the 4k restoration, it's just mesmerizing. It sounds great. You have the Tom Waits, Crystal Gale um, songs. It's uh, beautiful to look at really good performances. I don't know if I'm a hundred percent sold on uh, the male lead of this one, but, um, but, it's, you know, it's an interesting film. I love a good, I will always uh, stick up for an artist being ambitious over one, just kind of going for the, you know, so it's like, do whatever you want, Francis, because at least it's always interesting. And so when I was talking about this movie originally, Janet Maslin found me on Twitter and she started sending me uh, the original clippings of some of the articles about the making of this film and how chaotic and the bad press uh, from the New York Times era um, when it was uh, before it was released and then for that uh, music hall. And I believe she sent me her interview with Coppola at the time too. Yeah. Yeah, God. Yeah. I mean, the the production of this one definitely, I think, overshadowed everything else for such a long time. And Coppola's talked yes. about how like the test screen, it, like it was basically doomed before they even did a test screening. Like there was oh like God. no way that this was movie was going to be yeah. successful just because of the production. And I mean, this is the one that turned 
what what was it was zoetrope studios first and then it became american zoetrope or was it the reverse it was zoetrope first yeah okay. and this is all chronicled in i haven't read the entire book yet but uh, for those listening the path to paradise a francis ford coppola story it's a new book by sam lawson and it's amazing but uh, i just read like the chunks on the films we were going to talk about but i yeah. want to go back and read the whole thing but oh my goodness it's amazing yeah yeah, it really like I I knew before. I'm I'm also making. I haven't finished the book yet yeah. either. I'm making my way through it. It's it's really it, yeah. It's it's a gripping read, and I think that it gets into like it, it talks about a lot of the apocalypse now stuff as well, which is like really well covered in Hearts of Darkness. But I think that Sam does a great job of kind of building the through line through yes. Coppola's mm-hmm. career with everything. And I think one of the most interesting things for me is because I knew of one from the heart as this huge disastrous production that bankrupted Coppola like three times over that I just felt like there was always like, he came into it as I'm going to do the biggest movie ever made kind of thing. (laughs) Like I'm the King, you know, I just did apocalypse now I can do anything. But for him, he, no, not at all. Yeah, exactly. The experience of doing apocalypse now was such a disaster for him that he wanted specifically to, do a movie contained within a studio like he didn't want to have any location shooting like he he really wanted to be simple and easy and then it just kind of ballooned out of control a bit partly because he was inventing this whole new way of filming where they i was so curious yeah about that process which was uh he was using rope as kind of an idea of we're gonna you know it was like 10 miles that he built of vegas and somebody who is always comparing himself to a gambler talking about filmmaking (laughs) as a gamble so it just makes sense because he's like love is a gamble too that it it is set in vegas but he builds his own vegas he didn't want it to be just like any movie set there and um yeah so this process i i wish he said he couldn't stand up to the collaborators because they're like family he loves them yeah. and he trusts them but i do i'm kind of curious if that would have uh changed things what do you think mitchell yeah yeah i mean i think it's it's an interesting thing i mean i feel like um especially in like Kind of work environments when you have close relationships with people it's it's, it's really tough to brush against that and especially when you're somebody like coppola who is he like genuinely seems like the most kind-hearted guy in the world and he'll talk like in so many interviews about like oh like it was a nightmare even even on the, the cotton club encore like him and robert evans like had such oh, yeah. a contentious relationship through the godfather and yeah. the, then Robert Evans calls him for Cotton Club and is like, hey, I really need help with this. Like, can you help like write it? Can you help me like navigate Richard Gere? Can you can you direct it at a certain point? And like after everything went so bad for them on The Godfather, Coppola still shows up and does it and like is, you know, invested. And even they, they had a horrible time on The Cotton Club, too. And like there was yeah. like literally people getting murdered and Robert Evans on trial for murder during yes. The Cotton Club and everything. And like Coppola still... You know, it more recently, like in that the Q&A that I was watching with him, which was at like film at Lincoln Center, I think in like 2019 or 2018, like when the Encore cut first was released, um, he talks about like this movie I wanted, like Robert Evans was not there. He was with it was like Q&A with Coppola, James Remar and Maurice Hines. And but Coppola takes like five minutes to say like about how much he appreciates Robert Evans and how Robert Evans like deserves so much thanks for this movie and like all this stuff. And yeah, it just speaks to like how 
how genuine of a guy he is. Um, yeah. And you, you feel that in the sincerity, the earnestness of one from the heart, like it is such like a romantic picture, almost maybe to a fault. I have some real issues with the fact that they are together at the end and the movie sells Me that too. as like a happy end. <laughs> yes. And I think that that kind of goes to like the screenwriter wrote it. And when they were, uh, the screenwriter was calling or talking to Lucy Fisher, I believe I'm getting that name right, who is the head of uh, Zotrope, and is like, oh, what is the new one? And he was saying, no, this is personal. And she was the one who said, oh, I get it. It's one from a heart, one from the heart. So, mm. and that's kind of what it was supposed to be. And then wanted Coppola to read it, never heard back, and then just ran into him at the airport, which is amazing, <laughs> and tapped him on the shoulder. He was with Eleanor and is like a screenwriter. And, oh, what did you write? And, you know, like Coppola doesn't know him from Adam. And he's like, oh, I wrote this movie, One from the Heart. And Coppola got so visibly excited and tapped his own wife on the shoulders like, Allie, <laughs> this is the guy who wrote One from the Heart. And it's like, it was a highly personal uh, film. It is, uh, you know, that's no secret that Francis has had millions of love affairs and um, but never wanted to get a divorce, had a lot of issues with his marriage because he said, I just can't break up my family. I mean, some of that is the Italian, the Catholic, like I can't, yeah. you know, I can't do this again because if I take up with another woman and then six years, am I doing this again? Like, I don't want to start that cycle. I can't destroy a family. And so you can kind of see at the end of this, the, the couple uh, being together at the end, it does feel like you said some of these he didn't write or they were, um, this is not a job for hire, essentially, but these feel very um, autobiographical to some extent. And I do agree with you. I'm, I'm kind of mixed on the ending as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I I agree with you as well about what you were saying earlier. Frederick Forrest as the lead, I just don't think oh, he works in this. Not this one, no. Yeah, he's yeah. he's great in Tucker. He's great in Tucker. He's oh, great. Yes. He's great in other Coppola movies. But yeah, as and as Valley lead, Girl, I love him in Valley Girl. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god, he's so good at Valley Girl. Yeah, speaking of Nicolas Cage, like he's yeah, yeah. he's really great in yeah. that. But yeah, and this I just don't. I don't know what I can't even put my finger on it. Hundred percent. I maybe I maybe he needs a little bit more swagger to like sell. Like this yeah. guy's a scumbag, but you still kind of have to care. And I just feel like I don't necessarily, but I do think that I get really wrapped up in the grandeur of this movie. And as you were saying, like when I first saw it uh, a few years back on like the old DVD that they had mm -hmm. of it, um, which isn't even the greatest transfer, I still was like immediately blown away by the visuals of it oh and goodness. by yeah. the music and the way that they integrate there's so many scenes that are like like when they first so it's frederick forrest and terry gar the movie basically starts with them breaking up um yep. and then they they're broken up she goes i can't remember the name of the actress who plays her best friend but his best friend is harry dean stan Lady kazan thank you yeah and they so they go to like their friends places and the, there's this really gorgeous scene where we see them like in they're separated. We see them in like one we were focused on one of them in mm -hmm. like the living room couch or whatever their friends place. And then the other one is like superimposed behind yes. them as if they're, you know, reflecting their seeing the, mm -hmm. like, the, the daydreamy kind of imagery of the other person. And so we're seeing how like i think it just really captures this idea when you've broken up with somebody 
they're of, on your like, mind. For a, yes. Yeah. For a little while, you're, you're like having almost a shared experience separately yes. of like navigating your own feelings over the breakup. You can't not you can't stop thinking about them mm-hmm. and you're you're like feeling the same feelings but you're it's like when you're removed you, from you're each first other. in love where you keep thinking yeah. of these people it's exactly it's, it's a weird yeah there's this inverse. weird like echo yeah. to it and mm-hmm. i don't think i've ever really seen a movie capture that feeling yes. so well as this does and there's just so many scenes like that where coppola i think captures feeling in a way in this movie all the 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 natasha kinsky stuff is like unreal she is she's really great in this and raul julia Uh, raul julia yeah yes i almost think this is weird but like maybe again probably because nastasia kinsky but like maybe harry dean stanton would have been a better choice or even a james con somebody who works with uh coppola you need a little more um charm or you yeah. you have to figure out like the chemistry between uh these people and why gar would have fallen for this um, that's man, the biggest issue for me is, yeah. i don't think there's enough chemistry between them um or the way that uh forest was asked to play it or is playing it uh, there's something off there i will say yeah yeah and she's like she's she's got this like really like daydream like she is very much about like we're we're getting out of here there's so much imagery in this movie yes. about like getting away getting away she like wants we to escape yes. yeah and he he's really like locked in and he like has like all these great ideas of like we're gonna have a baby you know we're gonna get married yeah, and she obviously is like not really in it but yeah it just feels like you don't you don't get the sense of why she would even be with him in the first place and then yeah. so then when they get back together at the end it's very frustrating but and so then yeah. Raul Julia shows up and it's like, girl, that's Raul Julia. And he like, I know. Yes. No, but I, oh my God. Oh, I was going to say one thing I found interesting and I will admit that Coppola has a point here um, is everyone loves the idea of the fantasy. But if you've Mm -hmm. ever met somebody who's really impulsive and is just like, let's go, let's do this. Um, And I have, and it's like, someone I met who is extremely impulsive and um like five minutes after me so do you want to come do you want to go do this yeah and like uh it's long distance and you're like I don't know you buddy (laughs) you know I mean eventually yeah but then several months go by you have to get to know these people but you know so this idea this fantasy of it would be nice but not a lot of people are willing to get on that plane with someone they just met at the end like um, she wants to go to, I think it was Bora Bora at the end of the yeah. movie and then chickens out and goes home to, uh, Frederick Forrest, who's going to like burn her clothes and she's like, <laughs> yeah. girl, why are you leaving Raul Julia for the, like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It definitely is like yeah. this big come down. And I think, yeah. I think that I like, it does feel like, uh, uh, you know, to the, the breakup of it all like I feel like I've definitely been through that of like going through a rough breakup and like immediately kind of going out on the town and like looking Mm -hmm. for like anybody who like feels like this new this new thing who's going to you know heal that wound that you have and I think that the Frederick Forrest and the Natasha Yakinski stuff is really interesting because she is she's like a dancer and Mm -hmm. she is really portrayed as like this sort of like obscure object of desire she's really like mystifying Mm -hmm. and you can see how he would be like allured by her there's the 
the absolutely mesmerizing sequence of her like seducing him through the dance like yes. the, the musical number and like you could see like the Blade Runner 2049 like her this like really big him really small mm -hmm. like you know and like the the sort of editing of that whole sequence is really amazing but then so they have this whirlwind romance over the course of one night as Terry Gar and Raul Julia do and then the morning happens and immediately like Frederick Forrest, like she Kinski has become humanized to him. She is no longer, you know, this mystique character. She is just a, a human being who wants affection and is vulnerable. And he yes. immediately like dismisses her and moves away from it. And yeah, I think that that that's a really interesting trajectory. The, the way what the two of them go on. And again, it goes to his traditionalism of like, well, I want a baby. I want this and yeah. that. And, you know, that sort of old fashioned macho idea of like, well, I want the woman until you sleep with her. And then it's like, ah, she's just like every other chick. Yeah. And uh, Kinski, um, you know, actually did learn how to walk a tightrope for this. She could walk oh, wow. 20 feet in the air. Uh, it's covered in a Lawson book. And, um, you know, Kenny Ortega was um, being uh, was actually the protege of Gene Kelly. They were working on the choreography at Zotrope. And so you have Kinski there uh, doing these things. And it is it does feel a little Wenders like or a little Wenders like. And then mm. later with Wings of Desire, because she is playing like a circus performer who's escaped um, this idea of sort of, um, you know, possessing a, a circus performer. And <laughs> you, you get that Peter Falk love this movie and then Peter Falk's <laughs> yeah. Wings of Desire. So it is kind of that thing where you start wondering about how these films inspire the people that are in the filmmaker's orbit and yeah um we kind of uh, when we were talking about rumblefish that is sofia coppola's favorite movie that her father ever made and it is impossible to watch rumblefish and think about her filmography and realize that she is doing uh for the female psyche and the sensuality and the existentialism and and just the beauty and what she is playing with and not see the influence of rumblefish so it makes total sense but yeah watching this movie you start thinking about um you know some of these uh filmmakers being maybe a little bit inspired or just the trajectory of some of the people that worked on them yeah or liked them yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Sofia Coppola with Rumblefish thing is so interesting because, like, even in somewhere, I feel like you can see oh like God. motorcycle yes. boy and a Stephen Dorff character. Yeah, like that's yeah. I, oh, she's chasing her father and all of the the father <laughs> issues going through these movies. Yeah, or her movies especially. But. Yeah, I I wanted to ask you too how you feel about the. So like one from the heart, you know, ends with this whole movie was shot on Zoetrope Studios, like on the lot. And like, I wanted to ask you about how you feel about the sort of the production design, the setting of the movie, because I, I love the, the messiness of it. I love that we have these like gorgeous, like wide shots where you can see the ceiling of the studio Me and too. like, it, it kind of like breaks in a really effective way, the artifice of what we're seeing. And I think it connects with the themes of the movie and how like, the artifice, the even Frederick Force at one time talks about how like this town is all tinsel and like you you can easily just like pull it apart and see like what's underneath and stuff like that. And I yeah. love the that sort of like practicality of like being able to just feel that this is all done on a set. This is very much a movie. This is like a Hollywood, you know, an old studio yeah. musical. 
yeah, it's 10 miles of neon, I think, was in the book, which is amazing. Yeah. And um, in a weird way, it's kind of like Dogma was taking it down to basics. Yeah. But, you know, they drew on the floor and it's like, you know, like, let's put on a show. This is that. It's sort of a cross between like a 50s splashy musical, but also uh, let's get back to basics. Like, yeah, we're um, going to watch a movie. Like he talked about that. He thinks people go to the movies with the wrong mindset. Like he said, when mm. I go to a movie, I don't think A, B, C, or D. I just think I'm here and I'm seeing a movie and how exciting <laughs> that is. And and here he wants to bring that feeling and make you, like he is somebody who is, he's a very sensual filmmaker and he's all about emotions and he just wants you to feel the film, but also you never, you're never um, in doubt that you're watching a film. And I kind of love that. I think it works really well. I'm okay with it. It sort of goes with the, idea of musicals to begin with that these are heightened dream worlds yeah mm, yeah yeah i agree i like yeah that was really well said like i like i mean and certain movies i like you know you can count on me i like that you can count on me feels like i'm watching you know a real brother and sister yeah. interacting or whatever so like sorry movies i like get that but yeah francis for a couple of movies like a musical like i'm watching a musical i'm not here to watch real life yeah you know? yeah Oh, I like to, one of the things that Coppola said, I think it was on, in an interview on Tucker, uh, he was talking about how he always likes to match the, the style of his movies to like the main character of the movies mm -hmm. and watching that, like hearing that puts such a, like a distinct lens on all of these movies that like are in the, I mean, all of his movies in general, but also especially these ones in the eighties, like one from the heart. 100 mm -hmm. feels like uh, the movie that these characters feel like they're living in peggy sue got married especially like rumble finish especially like these feel like movies that these characters were constructed in the style and tone of them are really like connecting you to what's going on in their heads and i just feel like that's such a cool like rosetta stone for who he is as a filmmaker that like that's something that he latches onto immediately is like the style has to reflect who the character is yeah, absolutely. And I also like that this was around the time he was he was thinking about um, Goethe and he was also um, fascinated by like uh, the Greeks. And so you have this Greek chorus uh, mm -hmm. idea of the music. But at the heart, you know, even with all this artifice, and I think that might be the disconnect is it is so stylized. But then you are seeing this just extremely messy, like I said, almost Cassavetes, like it, it's a little painful if you grew up in a house where like parents were fighting or you're uh, somebody who's divorced, it might like push your yeah. buttons a little bit. And so I think that um, kind of the style and it's it's a little jarring, I think, but it is about people who've been together a long time, growing with each other or figuring out uh, if they still love each other, which is a theme for Peggy Sue Got Married. So do you have any other thoughts you want to uh, mention for one uh, from the heart or you want to move on to Peggy Sue? No, yeah, let's get into Peggy Sue. Okay, so Peggy Sue, I like it better now, but it's still not my favorite. It is such a weird film. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. You know, what's interesting is he was taking jobs for the money. He's very um, open about that. But he said, I was never taking a job going, I hate this or it's going to be a horrible movie. Like, why would he do that? He said he's not, you know, that guy. 
And so in the one, he was always uh, going, even Peggy Sue, even Peggy Sue, <laughs> uh, which is fascinating. Like it's a recurring thing in this University Press of Miss- Mississippi, Francis Ford Coppola interviews book. Like Peggy Sue is the one, like not even Peggy Sue. <laughs> and so um, I think uh, that's interesting because it is not my favorite, but I think it's one where you watch it in your 40s and then suddenly it hits you a little bit differently than it would have in your teen years. Um, And the idea of not only relationships and things you've gone through, but also this very bittersweet, it's it's a bit hard to watch in places, um, idea of looking after your parents as they get older. Uh, There's a heartbreaking scene. You have a woman uh, played by Kathleen Turner who in 1985, she's going to her 25th um, reunion for high school and she faints and um, goes back in time to 1960 and she's seeing some people who are no longer with her. I don't want to get into spoilers, but and also her mom is younger all of a sudden and her life is different and uh, she has different relationships with her friends and her high school boyfriend who she married played by Nicolas Cage um, who is giving one of the craziest performances you're ever going to see. And he will admit that. And Kathleen Turner, they were like oil and water. They hated each other during the making of this movie. Um, he didn't want to make it. I guess he said no to Francis five or six times, he said. And then finally he decided to do it. And as long as he could just do whatever he wanted, and he decided to play it uh, like pokey, from Gumby and Pokey and a little bit like Jughead actually it's a little bit of a a nasal kind of a nerdy it's it's like like yeah it's it's a strange performance uh it's a little distracting and um yeah so I like it more now I think I like the questions it's raising and Kathleen Turner's performance more than I like the film overall so what are your thoughts on this one yeah, I I really like it. Um, but it is one that kind of grows on me the more that I watch it. Um yeah. certainly the more that I am getting older. Like I'm not kind of like high school nostalgia trip movies have never done mm. anything for me because I had a very horrific time in high school. So like I'm never like, oh, if I could be back in high school. Yeah. And there's definitely like elements at the beginning of her getting back like there's a really sweet moment in Kathleen Turner's performance where um when she first goes to like her first day of back at school in high school um they're doing like the pledge of allegiance and she's like doing the the happiest like cheeriest pledge of allegiance that you've ever seen and it's so sweet um but yeah I think and I love too that the movie just kind of leans into what the concept is like she she goes mm-hmm. back in time. She's very confused. She goes to bed. She wakes up. She realizes she's still back there. And she's just kind of like, well, I'm just gonna, I guess I'm going to school. Like, She uh, does. Just, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I really like the kind of this idea of going back in time and trying to reconnect with yourself um, that we see here because she is like, Taking she inventory. feels... Yeah. yeah, she feels very disconnected in that first scene. Like her and Nicolas Cage have had like they're they're separated ish, like they're not really together. And she just seems very sad and very like lonely. Helen Hunt plays her daughter, which is kind mm-hmm. of a fun, like early Helen Hunt performance. Um, Jim Carrey also very young in yeah. this. Um and 
it's just like she just feels like she's really longing for something and not somebody who's like actively searching but then in this journey she kind of discovers it um like what she's looking for and i feel like a lot of the movie is you're seeing her try and like piece together what she needs she um kevin j o'connor plays like a very like speaking of Rumblefish and jack kerouac he's a very oh, like jack right kerouac yep. kind of character and he's like the guy that was she like she could have slept with yes exactly exactly he's like this cool like yeah. very like beat poet he reads her some poetry which is like the kind of atrocious poetry but it yeah. like definitely like the kind of poetry that i feel like as a teenage girl you would be very like transfixed by like this guy writing this poetry for me you know oh for sure um, and there's just like so much like romance there and then you kind of get the the thing that I love with her and the cage dynamic is at in opposition to one from the heart. It's not like this big sweeping, like I'm finding him again, but it is this like realization that like, Oh, I have 25 years of history with this guy. There's a reason that I fell for him in the first place. Yeah. Like maybe when I'm back in my present day life or whatever, it's not all fixed automatically. Like one from the heart, they kind of get back together and it's like, it's all good, like happy ending. Mm -hmm. Peggy Sue got married. The thing that I love is that it has this really practical kind of resolution for them yes. of like, we'll go, like I'll come over or you can come over for like family dinner and like, we'll start talking again. But like, mm -hmm. that's it. It's not, things aren't all better. And I really like that. I just think that there is a real practicality to this movie that I find very interesting for a fantasy picture like this that Coppola is really playing it very grounded. Um, and it just feels like it, this is almost like what would happen if this actually occurred in the real world. And I think that speaks to like the Capra thing that I was talking about earlier, where it is like, it's really magical realist, but these still feel like real human beings in a real environment. And I like that about it a lot. I do too. And it's interesting because I am uh, similar to you. I basically, I went to ninth grade and I was only like, that's was my last year of high school. I did like one or two months of 10th grade. And then I had another back surgery and then just went to college. And yeah. so I didn't have your typical like prom, um, homecoming type of uh, high school experience either. And what's interesting watching this is I'm actually at a point where they don't even know where I live. Like I've never gotten anything for my high school because I kind of consider myself more of a class of 96, but this would technically be my uh, 25th high school reunions uh, uh -oh. year uh, is uh, 2024. So I'm watching that. And I was also noticing uh, and remembering that um, in high school, I had a big crush in 10th grade, the two months that I, I went to 10th grade, I had to take an acting class because I was writing scripts and I sucked as an actor. I did like a little bit of play work in middle school because I could sing. That was about it. But I was horrible at acting. But I had a crush on this boy in my acting class who looked or his wardrobe was essentially Cage in Valley Girl. Nice. And he was doing scenes from Matt Dillon at, in Drugstore Cowboy. So wow. I feel like I had a crush on this sort of uh, cross-section of Matt Dillon and, and Nicolas Cage in this sort of era. Yeah, so right in the watching, Coppola 80s wheelhouse. Yeah, <laughs> like the Coppola 80s movie. So watching uh, these films and then thinking about, oh my God, this is my 25th. Uh, that was kind of amusing. But I do love everything you were talking about 
with um these are real people like she doesn't it it isn't as dark of course as pleasantville joan allen is in it which is interesting and joan allen is also in tucker but um but it is treating these people very realistically it isn't sunny it isn't the movie big for example yeah is fascinating because Penny Marshall was actually going to direct this with Deborah Winger. And then when Penny Marshall left, Deborah Winger left. And so it just kind of went through a bunch of uh, different uh, hands and then found Francis. But I think, you know, you need Kathleen Turner taking it completely seriously. And she does. I believe she got like the National Board of Review Award that year. Very well deserved. Um, and her only Oscar nomination for it. Wow. That is phenomenal. Yeah. 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 So I was glad to watch it again. I, I'm with you. I think the more I watch it, the more I can see in it and appreciate it. But yeah, it's still not my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I think I. it's definitely like the other ones feel like this definitely does feel the most like um like a for hire kind of job for Coppola, even mm-hmm. though it is like... The, he brings in Cage, there is that kind of like reverence for cinema history and everything. Like, I don't think that there is ever, I don't think there's a single Francis Ford Coppola movie that doesn't feel like a Francis Ford Coppola movie, like yes. ultimately. Mm-hmm. But this one, it's not like what it, when you know that it's like the one where in the, all those interviews, um, he's always like, even Megasu, yeah. even Megasu, like, <laughs> even you defi- yeah, <laughs> you definitely like get like, okay, I understand like why this is the one that maybe you don't, you know, see as much of yourself and you're picking it up after and it was Penny Marshall. And then I think Jonathan Demi was attached to it That's as well, right, which Demi. like this feels mm-hmm. very much like a Jonathan Demi movie. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, I I love like the emotionality of it. I love the when she goes back and and it speaks a lot to Kathleen Turner's performance when she goes back and she picks up the phone and it's her grandma calling and she like immediately oh. breaks down and yeah. there's this whole sequence where she goes to see her grandparents and obviously like we understand that her grandparents mean a whole lot to her and her grandma tells her to just like choose the like she tells her grandparents are the only one that she tells like what's going on and they believe her and her grandma tells her to like choose the things that you'll be proud of the things that you think will last and I think that it's just like those kind of scenes that feel really special but then like undercut there's like the movie's really funny too like she asks her grandpa like if he could do it all again if he could live life all over again what would he do differently and her grandpa says he would take better care of his teeth and like that's like it's just like a sweet moment i think the cage performance is bonkers um but it also as like a bonkers cage fan like it's it's a wild ride i have a lot of sympathy for kathleen turner though who was like Mm-hmm. unbelievably aggravated and speaking to your point about one from the heart and like Coppola maybe like not being able to confront family especially like he works so hard to get Cage on this movie and Cage shows up and is like I'm gonna be pokey from Gumby yeah. yeah and Kathleen Turner like went to Coppola multiple times mm-hmm. and was like can you get him to like stop and Coppola just kind of like lets it happen but yeah I mean I was reading um Kathleen Turner's memoir. Like, I didn't even know until recently oh, yeah. that Cage, like, sued Kathleen Just Turner for, for, like, yeah, defamation. Like, for it drunk was... driving and that he stole the chihuahua. And he won. Yeah. And she had yeah. to give a public apology. I mean, you know, who the hell knows what really yeah. went on? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. But my goodness, those two did not. And it's interesting because on Moonstruck, like, uh, actually share 
talked about <laughs> calling this performance a car crash. And like yeah. uh, Cage even said, you called this a car crash and you still wanted me to make this movie. And yeah. I think she said something like anyone who could do that <laughs> can do this. And so she actually liked that he went for it. So yeah. maybe it's good he finally said yes, and it's good he went for it because uh, that got him to Moonstruck for sure. But I love what you were talking about with the grandparents and the teeth and the little lessons. There's um, probably Sophia. I mean, Sophia plays this like obnoxious uh, sister who doesn't let them make out and rumble fish and, and uh, you know, is. but in this one, she is the sister of Kathleen Turner. And you can tell like, you know, it's that thing where, oh, I wish we had a better relationship and why you're always mean to me. And looking back, you might think you were closer with a sibling than you were or, uh, you know, you guys both change in adulthood and you get your own families and your own um, uh, lives and you kind of drift a little bit. And so I think it is making you question these things like um, like taking inventory and asking yourself, why did I do these things and would I make the same choices again which I think is valuable yeah yeah I think especially for similar to to my experience with Rumble Fish you know maybe if I had seen this I, I think I'd seen this for the first time like four or so years ago if I had oh, okay. seen this when I was a teenager I probably would have dismissed it like yeah. outright you know but watching it now I'm like honestly these are things that I probably do ask myself quite a bit like I have yeah. constant like reflections on like Oh, I, when I was in high school, I took, like, I went to, like, an intro to film class in my senior year of high school, but then, like, I, because of, like, health stuff and, like, mental health stuff, especially, I ended up dropping out of high school in my senior year and just getting, like, mm -hmm. homeschooled for my senior year, Um, and I, like, I think to myself constantly, like, what if, I oh, yeah. started I doing like film classes mm -hmm. in freshman year. Maybe I had a, you know, a completely different life. I was, um, I played soccer a lot when I was younger and I stopped doing that because my mental health just got so bad mm -hmm. that I didn't have, you know, the will for it anymore. And I just sure. the other day was talking to some coworkers about like, oh, I wonder if like, if I had pursued that, if I would have a completely different kind of life. And it's like, yeah, a movie like this is like the kind of thing where, if I had seen it a while ago, I just wouldn't really feel like the questions that it's asking are ones that really resonated for me. But now they certainly do. Um, yeah. And I think they certainly do for for Coppola as well. He's he seems like the kind of guy who's very reflective. Yeah. Yeah. It hit you. It's a movie you found at the right time, for sure. Yeah. And um, one that I rewatched for the first time in years um i think it was last year it was actually i think after i finished writing the piece for dvd netflix on elias kateas was um tucker man and his dream and i remember liking it and finding it inspiring in childhood but you know it would have been too mature or wouldn't have hit me the right way but I remember I liked it last year and same thing. I watched it again this week just on background. It wasn't one we were going to jump into very much, but I loved it a lot more this time. And, you know, it's dedicated to Coppola San Gio. And again, it's about a whole family working together, even though he didn't write this picture. It very much feels like um, sort of a key, a coyote, uh, a very uh, Coppola kind of figure played by Jeff Bridges uh, in this story based on uh, the real uh, Preston Tucker. And yeah, it's fascinating. So 
you finished, uh, we were talking off air a little bit that Gardens of Stone was new to us. I am about 75% through. I didn't finish it before this. Um, that was one we weren't going to go into too. That was a new one for you. So what are your thoughts on the other films of this decade? Um, anything we kind of went into outsiders and, um, but as far as Tucker and Gardens of Stone, any thoughts at all? Yeah. Yeah. Gardens of Stone. Yeah. We were talking about it a little bit. It just like, I, I watched it like two nights ago just for context because I had never seen it before. And it definitely, um, like it's, it's a very morose kind of Mm -hmm. film. Um, it's like, I think it has spots of being effective. It's got a great James Caan, Angelica Houston, James Earl Jones, um, Mm -hmm. Elias Coteas is in it as well. Um, like it definitely has like strong elements but something about it just feels like like that one feels like it's hard's really not in it um there is like a really like languid just kind of like staticness to it um mm-hmm. that like from scene to scene i just don't really feel like i'm like picking up anything um that's like yeah. carrying me through like emotionally or intellectually to the next bits and it definitely i know for like culturally it just kind of lives in the shadow of geo's death which happened yes. like while he was making it ryan o'neill's son and yes. mm-hmm. Neil coppola were on a, on boat, a boat together mm-hmm. kind of yeah ryan o'neill's son i can't remember his name but it was like recklessly driving and mm-hmm. you know uh went th- like through an underpass um yes. that he ducked in time geo did not duck in time it's really a tragic loss it and is. Mm-hmm. it's it's touching that tucker is dedicated to him and i think that i think you're right that tucker does feel really like a a film about it's about family it's about ingenuity it for me i saw it um very early days in the pandemic like i think summer like 2020 for the first time mm-hmm. and i liked it i didn't love it i yeah. rewatched it um as we were preparing for this and it really connected for me in a different way this time and i think that it's one where uh, learning more about Coppola's backstory, like he talked about like his dad, yeah, or his dad bought a Tucker. like he he had, you know, he was one of the people who who purchased one of them and obviously never got it. Um, but like like he really had a connection with Tucker as a car and as a story. And I think that it makes total sense that Coppola would connect with this guy. like he he has yes. had many people tell him in his life that he's like Tucker. and it makes sense that he would be, invested in the story of a guy who puts so much passion and a lot of other people's money into this like a mountainous dream and ultimately it fails yeah exactly exactly and coppola talking about this movie like he sees himself in tucker like this guy who's Mm -hmm. always like bucking the system and reaching for innovation and sometimes he's failing but coppola says failure failure is just as valuable an experience as success and i think that you could see that in so much of his career and how he is always picking himself up and always like he's fine at the cotton club encore you know like even like i'm so against this like trend of the george lucas and the steven spielbergs of like making changes to their you know older movies but those are always like really cosmetic changes whereas coppola is like really going back and like trying to find like the heart of his movies and like rediscover like what his movies actually are and I think that you can yeah. see a guy like he's constantly tinkering and constantly looking for perfection. He's almost like Howard Hughesy in a way of like not being able to like let anything go. I mean, Howard Hughes played by Dean Stockwell and Tucker, which I didn't think about until I just said that. But yeah, I just I really 
found this one as a very like core thesis of who Francis Ford Coppola is. It it really does. Yeah, I think it's maybe my second favorite of this era. Well, I would go back and forth between this and Cotton Club after Rumblefish of the yeah. 80s. It is really uh, tough to pick. But I love that you're bringing that up because um, he had an idea to keep playing with his movies as far back as the 70s because he was fascinated by the idea of video. And yeah. um, he was saying he, uh, it's in the Wasson book, he was going to make a movie, he was going to call it Remake which is take an old movie and then put it in a different order or maybe shoot a couple scenes and make a whole new thing. And this was around the time he um, brought the silent French version of Napoleon to, um, you know, like opera houses around the country uh, or symphony halls, essentially. And his dad made up a whole new score and uh, giving his dad work and, you know, and, Tucker is kind of following in the footsteps, too, of putting your family to work and this idea of taking the the whole family and the circus with you on the road. There are so many wonderful stories about like Gio and Roman and Sophia just being such an integral part of all of these um, productions, like Sophia running um, tape back and forth for uh, one from the heart at like one in the morning when she was a kid, you know, back from the editing bay. And it's like, you know, just that was what her life was like and um, how open he was. And uh, whenever anyone had a question around the studio, they would just go ask Gio, ask Gio, because he was his dad's right hand man. And he also knew how to navigate his father's moods and his mental issues. And so Gio was very much going to follow in his father's footsteps. So it is a little bit, uh, well, a lot heartbreaking, actually, in retrospect. Yeah. But um, this film, Tucker, is as vivacious as Gardens of Stone, which for, of course, the subject matter, uh, it's Vietnam era and it's about the toy soldiers. They call themselves an army unit that um, essentially buries um, the men when they come back from Vietnam. Um, And so, you know, I think these are interesting to watch back to back when you know what's going on. Again, all of these films uh, reflect the man. And I don't think I would have appreciated it nearly as much without this brilliant idea Mitchell so I want to thank you for your uh for inspiring me and sending me on this journey are there any more thoughts you have on Coppola that you want to share any other favorites not from the 80s that maybe don't get mentioned as much that you want to recommend Oh, but yeah, I mean, I we we talked about it a little bit earlier, but um I think you said it was you and you and Bilga too is also a fan oh, the Rainmaker yes. I think I, love I it. I saw it for the first time last year and it, I mean, it rocked my world. Like, I think it's, it's like a great courtroom drama. Matt Damon's really, Danny DeVito's really great in it. Mickey Rourke's really great in it. But yeah, it's like a, a Grisham adaptation too. I think it's really, it was Grisham's favorite of all of the film adaptations of his movies. Um, And I think that it just really, like, it's, it's a really compelling story. It really follows this one case, like all the way through. I think that, um, yeah, that's and it one deals that with medical, which I think hits us on a certain level. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I probably Coppola too. He he had oh, polio yeah. as a kid, like his him very similar to you and me and to Scorsese, who we talked about yes. uh, before on one of our other episodes that we did together. Like Coppola had polio as a kid, and like Duck he in bed. 
stuck mm-hmm. at home and in bed and like made puppet shows, yeah. you know, to to entertain himself and his family and everything. And yeah, I just Rainmaker, I think is one that I you don't really see people talk about it that much. And I, I think it's one of his best. I mean, I would put it up there, you know, among among some of his best, like maybe like second tier below the the conversation in Godfather kind of masterpiece levels. But yeah, I really love the Rainmaker. What about you? Are there other ones other than other than Rainmaker that stand out to you? Um, you know, I I remember liking Youth Without Youth and was it mm-hmm. Tetro? And, Tetra, yeah, Tetro. Uh, um, I remember finding them, you know, exquisitely beautiful. But for me, I got to go with the Rainmaker. Dracula is not my favorite, but but it's a fascinating one. It's beautiful to look at. There are some great performances and then some that kind of <laughs> leave you uh, scratching your head sure. a little bit like uh, Cage in uh, Peggy Sue, but it's daring. Yeah, I got to say Rainmaker. If you're listening and you have not seen that movie, check it out. Yeah, and we're all excited for Megalopolis. I can't believe that's actually happening. Oh, I know. <laughs> so exciting. Well, Mitchell, I want to thank you so much for doing this. You'll have to come back when you have another brainstorm. I mean, I know I've written down several uh, that you sent me, but uh, you always come up with good ideas. So hit me up for sure. Thank you. Always excited to come back. Thanks again for doing this. It was, yeah, great to to research and prep for this and to talk with you about it. I mean, I, yeah, this, this subject matter was really awesome. Always a pleasure. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.